All right, welcome to the Doodles podcast. My guest today is Todd Romano. He is a professional, well, racer of many things, uh, uh, motorcycles, uh, ATVs, uh, trophy trucks, all that stuff, and uh, also is the owner of uh, Speed UTVs. So thanks for uh, letting me Hello. chat with you today. Appreciate it stopping by. Yeah, thank you. So we met in, um, in uh, St. Martin, or we have a friend in common there. Uh, is that you've been you've done more sailing than that though, right? Yeah, so I, I grew up in Rhode Island, and I was very fortunate to to uh, grow up uh, and sail out of Narragansett Bay. Yeah, and uh, back then my friend had a forty-two foot Beneteau that on you know the Wednesday night regattas and race out to Block Island and yeah. did some Cape Cods and back and stuff like that. And uh, but it was fun just growing up. I was I was a kid. I was I think I was fourteen, crewing on my buddy's dad's boat and you know losing the winch overboard and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, the, I got invited back, which is amazing. Yeah, that's always good. Well, if you can just sit there and turn the winch, you'd be all right. <laughs> in the, um, arm power. But, but you, uh, I mean, we've been talking over the last couple of days. I mean, you're interested in actually sailing full-time eventually or something like that. Yeah, so growing up in Rhode Island, um, one of the other things I got to do with a friend, We, uh, I think they were called F-18s. They were like catamaran race boats back in the day. Yeah. Put that just a little closer there. Really fun, high-speed boats. And uh, my buddy got me excited about, you know, transatlantic or down to hawaii trans-pacific and you know san diego to hawaii all these different things and uh you know, luckily brian invented me out to go to the heineken regatta this year and was happy to do that and a lot of the racing i do i race down in uh, baja so all this, this kind of remote racing you kind of get used to being alone and being remote and, and not having access to support and uh and you plan for all that. You have to be ready for all that. And I think uh, sailing is just another version of that. So the idea of going, I don't know how long it takes to get Hawaii, but does it take a week? Well, it depends on what kind of boat you're on. I mean, from talking yeah. to you, you like the fast boat. Yeah. So if you're, yeah. So uh, you know, if you're like in a gunboat or something doing 20 knots the whole way, it would probably take you. Oh, uh, what is it? About 2,000 miles. So you know, you're doing uh, you know 400 and. 400, 400 miles a day, so yeah. not that long, you know? Yeah, a week tops. But yeah, but... And the gunboat, we talked last night. Yeah. That's, uh, you know, in that 60-foot range uh, yeah. is pretty awesome. I, I was telling you, I had a, uh, an acquaintance in our industry, went all the way up to Alaska mm-hmm. in a gunboat, and, uh, and just those those things, the ability to go explore. Yeah. Uh, wife's not too excited. She wants to meet me there, so she'll fly to Hawaii, and I'll uh Well, you have friends that are willing to crew with you? Is that the... I'll, I, I can imagine I could find some. Okay. They'll probably... Hey, call me. I'll go yeah. I have to find the ignorant friends because the uh, ones who know me might feel like that's a really bad idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I imagine, I mean, you know, I've, I've talked to some gunboat captains and, you know, just saying that it, it, the one guy I talked to was on a gunboat 50 or something like that. And he said he was doing like all close to 30 knots one night in that thing. And he said it was just terrifying because you're just flying through the water. And, you know, I couldn't imagine. 30 knots. 30 knots, you know, just flying. Wow. So, and that's, you know, oh, my truck does 140 yeah. across the desert. So, all right. So, let's, <laughs> so you, you, you were telling me, so what is kind of your racing career? What have you got? What have you done there? Yeah. So I would say, uh, a career, a career spent in the dirt, you know, I've raced pavement. I've done a lot of that, but uh, my skill set's always been back to dirt. So I started, you know, and, and I, I've been very fortunate in almost all my sports to, to be part of the sport when it gets the beginning. So in 1988, uh, I, I started riding and racing mountain bikes and I, mountain bikes really started in 1988, yeah. which is crazy when you think bicycles have been around forever, but right. riding them on trails and single track. And I, I was racing in Arizona and got very fortunate to go race for a, a specialized uh, team in Arizona and then get to grow and get to be very competitive and raced, uh, back with some of the greats that are still known today these iconic guys that i'm not one of them but uh i get to race with them and being part of the, the, those amazing years but guys like johnny tomac and ned Overin and richie graywall tinker Warriors, all these great guys that um we all started this industry uh and it, it got to grow and i still ride today i ride for santa cruz today and actually just got a new bike yeah you i saw that in the yeah, garage new, yeah, in the garage there cool. uh, so you know biking what was interesting uh we, i was racing the, all these crazy downhills, like the kamikaze downhill at Mammoth. I'm on a, I'm on a hardtail mountain bike with the worst front fork you could ever have. And we're doing 60 miles an hour down the mountain, down the mountain yeah. and in our practically in our underwear. Like I yeah. wear more gear motorbiking than I ever do mountain biking. Yeah. And, um, a, a, a gentleman that I was racing against back in the day, they, uh, uh, a magazine called mountain bike action. They, they wrote an article against about Johnny Tomac, who's a very famous guy. And, uh, he said, how are you going so fast? He's like, well, I ride a dirt bike on the weekends. 
because with everything, I have, this, I have this friend who once told me, I, I asked him, hey, how do I get any faster? And I was at the end of my two-wheel racing career. He's like, Todd, you're never going to get any faster. He's like, you're a great rider, but you're just not going to get any faster because to be fast, this was his comment to me, which I remember this forever now, to be fast, first you have to go fast, mm. you dumbass. Yeah. Right? And the theory there is if you don't take risk, right. you don't know how to manage that, that mistake. Yeah. So my racing career, I was kind of done making mistakes, but the dirt bike, you know, mountain bikes, we were doing 10 miles an hour, right? Right. That's your average speed if you're fast. Um, motorbikes, we were doing 25, 30, mm-hmm. right? Um, on same, similar single track. So as your eyes, your brain, your reflexes all go faster, you became faster on the mountain bike. Right. And that transitioned after riding motorbikes, uh, starting to ride motorbikes, then I started racing motorbikes and I raced forever down in Baja and in the desert of Arizona and California. I raced for Honda, raced for Kawasaki. I ended my career racing for Monster Energy Kawasaki. Um, not physically ended it, but just what size? Done. What size bikes were these? So when I raced Honda um, down in Baja, we had the, the super bike of all bikes. I raced a XR650. Um, it was a bike that did great in Baja. Just big, heavy, long bike that made tons of power and you could run it pinned all day. The bike did 105 miles an hour across the lake bed. Uh, didn't turn really good, but there's not a lot of turns in Baja, like here in the mountains. It didn't stop really good because it was heavy, Yeah, but it never broke. And it, 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 it today, I think if we were racing to La Paz again, I take that bike, even though it's 20 years old, I take that bike over a new bike. Well, I mean, that's part of, you know, I guess we'll kind of get into it some more, whatever, but now, but uh, I mean, how many people actually finish like the Baja 1000? Is it, I mean, we have about a 60%, uh, 60% finishing rate okay. of, of all the classes. So in the higher classes, like I race in the, the highest class uh, Trophy truck, that, that finishing rate's even lower because the speeds were going and the mechanics are just failing. You know, we got thousand horsepower motors right roll on 39 inch tires and so your transmissions are getting beat up your brakes are getting beat up you wreck the car because you're going too fast yeah. i've had some horrific wrecks in the truck um but it's just part of, of so what is your truck are you sponsor are you still sponsored by tonka and all so that? yeah i had a great uh no tonka um unfortunately that that was about a four-year deal we did a did a deal we made my that we did this aspirational idea with Tonka. Tonka has always been trucks and dump trucks and mining trucks. And I, I approached Hasbro and I said, hey, um, you, you have maybe inspirational toys, but you don't have aspirational toys. Right. You know, and if you're trying to figure out when the, the what's different with, with Tonka or any kid's toy, usually the kid, especially if it's seven and under, doesn't know what he wants. Hmm. And when grandpa or grandma or aunt or mom go to the store, like I got to get little Billy or Sarah a toy. Right. And if the family is seeing this racer like me out there and, and, or they're seeing commercials or now they see the car, they're like, Oh, I'm going to get him. That that's that guy. Right. So now we're teaching a kid to aspire. And I never get uh, Nike made a Nike or Gatorade made a commercial with Michael Jordan back in the day. It was, it was, I want to be like Mike commercial. Right. It was an aspirational. I want to be, I right. want to be like Mike. It was this aspirational commercial. So when I approached them, we did, we did a great deal. We did four years or I think four years or five years with Tonka um, with Hasbro. And we did, I was the, I was the kids meal at Wendy's. We did 5 million, really? 5 million kids meals wow, in that's one cool. month. Then uh, I don't know how many millions like of toys sold through yeah. Walmart, Target, and it was an amazing thing. And that's great. The gentleman who put it together is a great friend, and you know people retire, programs move on, and you got to always be fresh. So I was a, very fortunate to have them. I've had great sponsors, my tire sponsors, Toyo Tires, and helped develop technology with, with tire companies and wheel companies like KMC, um, shock companies, and sponsored by King and my fuels, VP Fuels Oil is uh, v, is uh, VP Fuels Batteries, Odyssey Batteries, so like the whole truck. Everything you can consume is sponsored, uh, sure. and then you have your title sponsors to run the program. I'm sure it's still not. I mean, you, you, I guess the goal for something like that or the, any kind of trophy truck is to have enough sponsors that it pays for itself so you're not coming out of pocket paying that. Because I'm sure it's got to be really expensive to operate. I, I, I would bet five of us make money racing trucks out of the 40 that own them. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a bucket list sport. Um, right. It's the... It is a sport you can write a check and participate in. Um, there, there is very little qualification needed because uh, you're at your own risk. You're not really risking anyone else. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I would 
tell you, there's few of us who make a living. There's a lot of us who spend a lot of money. Yeah, I've been, I've been one of the fortunate people that have made a career making a living. But I, I, one of my biggest angles is we don't just raise money. We find ways to get people that we do business with on the shelf. Like you get, I get more shelf space at Walmart for Tonka. I've got pro- companies in AutoZone because work with AutoZone. So if they needed, like VP Fuels came out with a lubricant and they wanted an AutoZone. So part of my deal was I got them in. So if you can help your sponsor generate revenue. Yeah then you're always, they always sponsor you. I've had sponsors for decades and that's the trick. So how did you go from motorcycle racing into trophy truck? They come at you pretty fast when you're on the motorcycle. You know, <laughs> you're, you're tired. I have Ironman down there. You know, you go Ironman 500 miles and you're just blowing bubbles and your, mm-hmm. your hands are falling off, your skin's falling off your feet because you have so much sweat going in your boots that your feet are so soft it's like you're in a jacuzzi for 20 hours. Oh man, yeah. Uh, so... They come by or, or you broke down early or someone got hurt or you, and you start seeing the trucks and, you know, you, there's a saying and I hate saying it because my buddy Ricky Johnson always says it with age, get a cage. Um, <laughs> yeah. I got it because it was cool. I didn't, I never really have been adverse to the risk. You know, yeah. it's never really, I've never been hurt on a bike in Baja, which is phenomenal. been hurt a lot here in the States. Um, so just loved it. And Got very fortunate. Sponsors built my first race car for me. It was an open wheel and limited buggy. Um, very, very fast car. Uh, faster than the trucks at the time. The difference between a buggy and a truck is truly just fenders. Okay. Uh, so the arrow on a buggy is better than the arrow on a truck. Right. Um, the trucks now, there's a big difference because a truck has to have what's called a straight axle or a liver end versus a, you have a transaxle on a buggy. But uh, my buggy did 155 miles an hour. Through um, the desert. Through the desert. Oh. It accelerated violently. Um, and it was light. So it was just, a, it was, it was going from the a motorcycle to the buggy wasn't that hard because they still had that very twitchy, not settled, very bizarre way of uh, handling where the trucks, you just kind of sit there and, and they just pound, they just eat dirt. Like yeah. it doesn't even... To, the difference in the truck for most people is you don't realize you can go faster. Um, you can take the corners. You can go deeper into the corners. You can drive bigger through the bumps. So you get if I put you in the truck with me and we were doing 60, you'd be like, wow, this is amazing. We probably could be doing 90. Yeah. Right? And that's, a, that's the thing that gets tough to realize. So what, I mean, when you're driving a truck through the desert of Baja, I mean, like what's, I mean, how do most people like break their truck or get injured? I mean, how is that? What's, what's the number one, I guess, danger? Um, my biggest fear is wreck unconscious fire. Oh shit. Yeah. Right. So there's no one out there. Right. Uh, helicopter. Oh, do you have a co-driver or yeah. something? Okay. Yeah. Helicopter can't fly past dark. It has mm-hmm. to be grounded at dark because of Mexican laws. Um, we don't run a lap. It's point to point every time. So you're never doing like in the States, we'll race Parker or race the Mint 400. Those are like 80 to hundred mile loops. You're never more than 20 minutes in the desert because of the way that the courses work. So it's very easy access yeah. and there's safety everywhere. Yeah. Um, not that you, st- I mean, I've still wrecked in the States and been very fortunate uh, that there's safety crews there, but in the Mexico you wreck, I mean, I've torn both my thumbs off in Mexico and you know, <sighs> just, it's, uh, you just hope that you get out uh, yeah. and you get to manage that. And that's, I think part of the process of, of Mexico. That's why I think sailing across the open waters has the same thing. You have to, manage those risks differently it's not a sprint down there you know lately it's becoming a sprint because the technology and the budgets are crazy you know and so people are pushing it and the younger teams that are coming up they have even more not sponsor money but family money yeah um where there is no budget right you know they're just spending millions and millions to go racing but they're talented uh there's i mean the mcmillan family um i've known them their, their family's been in our industry for four generations they're called the McMillions. Right. They spend that much money. They have sponsors, but there's no way you can spend, you can generate endorsement deals what they spend. Right. Uh, same thing with like the Menzies. They're Bryce's of talented, probably one of the most talented drivers I've ever seen. Um, but an amazing technology. They, they run their program like an F1 program. Right. So, um, so yeah, so risk down there. Um, the, I, for me, I don't have a lot of risk in racing the truck outside of a mechanical failure that makes the truck wreck. So I was going across the lake bed. Luckily, this was in the States. I was going across the lake bed in Gene, like there was the Min 400. And your, your spindle, that's what steers your wheel left and right that your tie rod attaches to. The tie rod has a heim joint. Heim joint goes into a spindle and there's a bolt in there. And that, that, when you turn your steering wheel, that, that rod moves and it moves the spindle. There's that going across the lake bed at 140, the tab that held the tie rod to the spindle broke off. Mm. Not because I did anything wrong on the lake bed, it was prior, so I hit something or whatever. 
But when that happened, the, usually the car will, the wheel will go one direction, you flip and roll. Yeah, yeah. Fortunate enough, I learned something in that situation that at high, high speed, the wheels own set like rolling mass. Yeah, because you got gyroscoped. Right. And, yeah. it, and it went straight. Gyroscopic procession. So it's not going to, yeah. It didn't go anywhere. So wow. I was able to slow that down. I couldn't turn it. I went thrice through into the weeds because yeah. I, I knew not to turn left or right. But you're on a lake bed. There's really nothing that's going to hurt yeah. you. In Mexico, that would have been bad. Yeah. Because usually we're in huge whoops. Like the, the chairs we're sitting on are 36 inches tall. The whoops are bigger than that, and they're about eight feet apart. So four feet so you're tall. you jump and all Don't the- even jump. You skim over the top. You oh, usually click, no, or, really? click off. I bet... Easily 75 to 95 miles an hour over the, over these chairs that are eight feet apart, rocks, boulders in them. And you just, if, as long as you maintain that 70 or 80, you skim them. Yeah. You get too low and then you just freaking, yeah. uh, it's pretty brutal. So, so if you break a steering arm there, you're done. Yeah, yeah, you're screwed. What t- so how long does it take, I mean, the Baja 1000? What's, what's like the record or what's a good number? <laughs> so unfortunately the course changes, so you can't really set a record and the distance changes. But when we... When we had a little bit less technical terrain, whatever reason, whatever they've done these days, they got us like rock crawl in some sections. So I have a two-wheel drive truck that's pretty damn big, and they get us going through like billy goat trails at like oh, ten miles an hour. Okay, and then we go wide open. And but in the, I mean, I, when I raced my bike down there, I averaged sixty miles an hour on a bike through the night for twenty-two hours. <laughs> right, twenty-two uh, hours on twenty-two the bike? hours. Uh, oh, man, so when you think about that, that's that. That speed, you're doing 90, you're doing 40. Yeah. And now we're more in the 52 to 55 range. They've slowed it down. Okay. Even though the vehicles are go way faster, they've made this parts of the course way more technical. Way more technical. Okay. And so is that, I mean, being in racing all, all this time and doing the trophy trucks and all that, is that what in, kind of inspired you? And I guess maybe you made the connections and all that to start Speed UTV? Yeah. So interesting enough, uh, as you get sponsors, they ask for ideas. You know, one of the things I look at today is what, what companies or businesses have brand ambassadors, right? Like, I think what you do is actually pretty amazing that you're a brand ambassador that, that understands the technology. You probably give advice back to the manufacturer. You help develop, Hey, the steering, I couldn't, I didn't have the same visibility. You know, the, I couldn't see past the, 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 the can the, the jib was always in the wrong position or, Hey, the, the master bedroom, I, it's too tiny. We need a bigger closet. Cause I live in on this long. Like you can give so much feedback. So myself and my business partner, Robbie Gordon, Robbie's a very famous uh, racer as well. IndyCar, uh, NASCAR, Trans Am, desert, you know, Rob and I've been racing forever. We've been that, that these guys that the big companies come to us. So we have about 50 patents that over the last 20 years, we, we license or develop. So the Polaris four seat razor, we developed, Rob developed that one. The razor S I was part of, uh, the John Deere Gator, Yamaha Rhino. Um, Robbie and I book built the wildcat for Articat double X together. Uh, and then just in the last three years, we said, you know what, everyone we license our intellectual property to does a good job with it, but. They don't finish it the way we would. Right. They're, they're, they're licensing our IP, but then they still build the rest of the car, right? So he said, we're going to go build our own. So three years ago, we said, forget it. We're just going to one last hurrah, go take all the years of uh, racing, all the knowledge we have, and we're going to go build what no one else really knows how to build. Not, not from a, a lack of uh, education. I think there's some talented people at work in all these companies, but... Um, and I think we, I think I share this with you, but if you go to school to be a heart surgeon, right. Or an orthopedic surgeon, um, you come out of college as a, as a medical doctor, and then you do an internship and then you do a fellowship and then you probably do something else. I mean, you don't go sh- just cause you get an A in, in medical school. doesn't mean you can cut someone's heart open. Right. Right. You know, uh, and the guy who got a guy who got a C in medical school still gets to cut a guy's heart open yeah. and he might do better because during fellowship and hands-on he did better, right? Well, there's a difference between book smart and practical smart. Right. And I mean, that could be, I mean, maybe the guy that was a solid A in school, he's handshakes, you know, yeah. and you know, the C gets rocks. Or maybe he drinks whiskey in the middle of the day. <laughs> well, speaking of which, <laughs> a little more, I think. So what Rob and I have is, is years of learning of what makes the cars faster. You know, the, our company is called speed because that's all we chase. Yeah. You know, our competitors, and, and they're great companies. I've raced for most of them. Polaris, Kawasaki, Honda, Yamaha, Suzuki. They're great brands. I mean, amazing. I mean, even out of Canada, you got you got Can-Am. Um, they don't chase speed. Unfortunately, they're publicly owned. They chase Wall Street. Well, Wall Street chases, chases them, and it's all 
we can't build a car that costs this much or has it has to have this much MS3. They have all these companies that do studies for them on what they should build. And, and here's the here's a study we found out that in the Northeast, you should build that. And, and Rob and I just said, you know, we're going to build what we would drive. We're going to share. We're, we're at the end and at the top of our racing career. I just took second in the Baja 1000 last year. Um, I don't know how many more wins I have in me. You're racing this year, right? Racing again this year. All right, I'm gonna. I, well, I may be down in Baja uh, at the same time. So I'm gonna, gonna push watch. in the car with me. <laughs> All right, let's do it. That'd be cool. I'd love to see that. Yeah. Um, so we finally unleashed all our trade secrets. Okay. And it's what we've built. And go to speedutv.com. Uh, and our 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 business we call it Born in Baja. So all our all our cars are called El Jefe and the Bandit yeah. and the El Diablo. Like we, yeah, so so what are some of the specs? I mean, I was looking at it was like 300 horsepower for some of these cars. I'm like, I mean, it yeah. just, I mean, it's they're not cars; they're off-road machines, I guess. When I went to college in, uh, sorry, when I was in high school, uh, a, a Mustang GT had 225 horsepower. Yeah, and I never forget how fast that car was. Yeah, uh, car really topped out at about 135 miles an hour because that's all it was geared to do. Back right, then. right, right. But it was scary fast, you mm-hmm. know. So we make 300 horsepower. We lay, we, we weigh less than that Mustang. Yeah. Um, we do about the same top speed Yeah. and we're four wheel drive. Uh, we roll on 30 up to 35 inch tall tires. So size of bigger than most, almost every truck an F three fifty comes with 33s. Yeah. So bigger than any truck tire you could buy. We come standard with a 35. Um, what kind of suspension travel do you get on 23 to 24 inches of wheel travel? So Go on our side. I mean, we can jump the thing 120 feet. Yeah, uh, it's it's amazing. It can go across the whoops at that 80 miles an hour, just like our trophy truck. It's it's uh, an all-wheel drive race car. That's a production car for the consumer. Is there a class like in the Baja that would uh, that would fit into? Yeah, so we fit in pro production UTV. Just no one wants us there anymore. The car is just in a league of its own. Okay. Fortunate enough, you can't change the rule book. They could change the rule book, but we fit every category. We're one liter. We're a turbo. We're four wheel drive. One, one liter. So we we set a Guinness horsepower and one liter. We set a Guinness Book of Record. So the only vehicle that makes more horsepower per cylinder per yeah. hole is a Formula One car. So you a four cylinder? Two. Two. Two cylinder. I make 150 horsepower a hole. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Okay, yeah, I I I need to see this engine. I think. I mean. So, Think of all that. How many? We got like turbocharger, supercharger? Turbocharged. Turbocharged. Turbocharged, intercooled, oil-cooled. Yeah, so think of all this. You got to see my vet last night, right? Yeah. That's the new Z06 makes 700 horsepower, right? It's an eight-cylinder. Yeah. Seven, probably a 7.6 liter, not a one liter, but it's an eight-cylinder. Yeah. So it only makes 85 horsepower a hole. Right. I make twice the horsepower per hole than the new Z06 vet. Wow. Than any Ferrari. That's impressive. Any Lamborghini, we make more per hole. Yeah. And next year, we're putting, so we have a two-cylinder, two one-liter. Next year, we're, we're mating those together, and we'll have a four-cylinder, two-liter. Okay. And that'll oh, make, okay. That will make north of 550. Wow. Okay. Man, <laughs> that's some beasts out there. Yeah. So, I mean, like, what kind of, uh, I mean, what, what kind of production run are you doing on these? So, we, we're capable of producing 2,000 a year. Uh, okay. 2,000, sorry, 2,000 a month. 2,000 a month, really? 2,000 a month. We'll ship 16,000 cars in the next 13 months wow. just to get off back order. Right. We have that many on back order. And then, uh, so it's, uh, yeah, what is the back order? Like about 16,000. 16, we'll probably catch up. It'll take us till the end of, let's say, the end of January to get through the first 4,000. And then I have another 12,000 that is about eight months because we just can't ship that many to, to dealer that quick. Yeah. We can produce it, but I don't think they can sell them. Right. They need so many cars a month through their dealerships. So if by next fall, 12 months from now, uh, we ship 16,000 cars, that's right, uh, that's right on track. What, uh, I mean, what kind of price range are we looking on these things? The base car is right in line with our competition at like 32, 33. 32,000, really? Yeah. That's that's not bad at all. Yeah, for when you think. I mean, a, a Mustang costs more than that. A Jeep costs more than that, and, oh, absolutely. and and we we are the Jeep of power sports from our accessory line and everything we do. But uh, you think guys go spend a hundred k on a Jeep? Yeah, and it really can't do much besides be a, a, a really good grocery getter. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, I was talking to you the other day. Like, uh, so we, we got the little Ural motorcycle I tow, I tow behind the RV. I was thinking, man, I need to get one of those and tow that. Because like, the Ural's great. I love it. It's a lot of fun and it looks cool. But, like, I mean, you can make these street legal, right? Uh, 
So depending on the state, okay. California. So here's an interesting thing. And it depends. We talked about getting pulled over, right? Right. So the way the laws work, every vehicle made has the right to drive in any other state, regardless of the law, as long as it's registered in another state for 30 days. Right. Okay. So me as a Utah resident, I can, I can legally register my car, my UTV, my speed UTV here in Utah, and I can drive it on the streets in California. Yeah. I will get pulled over. Yeah. And they're going to give me all kinds of grief and God help you. If you, they'll breathalyze you, they'll look for drugs. They'll do everything yeah. you can imagine. Right. You get their gun with their magazine and not loaded behind the car behind you, whatever their process is. Right. Yeah. You gotta be careful with that. So uh, my take is if you register in your state and you know, the rules of the other states, that's what you have to, well, he, he, you know, all the stuff there. Cause I guess, well, I'm here in Salt Lake or well, we're in park city, but like uh, I'm buying an RV tomorrow in uh, Salt Lake. And I was like, I'm not going to be back in Texas for six months or more. How do I register it? And he's like, register in Montana. Yep. So there you go. So I've got a new LLC in Montana and register in the RV there. So. Is it sailing doodles LLC? No, it's glamping doodles, <laughs> glamping doodles, glamping doodles, LLC. So <laughs> glamping. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's the, so if you're not watching uh, the sailing doodle show, you should be watching glamping doodles also. So, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, that's cool then. I mean, so like, I mean, you can get it. I mean, you, I mean, does it have, I mean, does it come with like heat and air conditioning and all that stuff? So our current car, um, it can come with a front windshield. Uh, we have heated seats so you can turn the seat heaters on. Yeah. Um, and, and it has full doors, right? Okay. The doors are at your shoulders or above. So that's for most people, that's plenty warm. That's what you want it for yeah. though. You're not, it's not a daily driver. It's for going through the, right. uh, the you know, the, just the, comfort. Yeah. You know, wind's not in your face. Seat's warm. If it's, if you're up in the mountains and it's 50 degrees out, you're comfortable, right? Yeah. The, the 2023 car, we have a full, uh, took that same car and we put a full, um, a full cab enclosure on it. Yeah. So we have full HVAC. Okay. So we'll have oh, really? air, air conditioning. We try to have that, the Range Rover yeah. of a off-road toy. I imagine you add a little weight, you lose a little performance with that, but you do, but it's crazy. And like, I've been very fortunate in all my racing career. I, I had a Stuart Raceworks luxury pre-runner. So they're, they're million dollar pre-runners to, they cost more than the race trucks. Yeah. They are absolutely miserable to work on because they're, you take a, you take my trophy truck and then you skin an F-150 or a Chevy cab to it. And then you use the firewall and then you bring all the air conditioning, all the heat, you have everything. So it makes it much more difficult to work on. But when you are down there pre-running all those miles, yeah. it, I mean, all you're, you're running with a headset, shorts, and a t-shirt on. You're blowing 68 degrees on you all day long. You never get fatigued. Yeah. So for the guy who is like, I just want to enjoy going up on the mountains with my wife or my girlfriend or my, my girlfriend wants to drive the car with her daughter. You're just out of the elements. It's not raining. There's no mud coming in and you're cool. So is this a, so it's not just like a Baja type vehicle. It's it, it's it rock crawling type stuff. Well, we'll be racing King of the Hammers, which you need to come to this year. What is that? King of the Hammers is Burning Man <laughs> times 10. Okay. It's the biggest off-road festival. It's in, it's in Southern California. Look it up. King of the Hammers. It's the end of January. Um, 80,000 people on, oh, wow. the, on the lake bed, bands every night. Okay. And we race every day. Oh, that'd be about, it's a rock. We're coming back from Baja. That'd be great. It's a rock crawling desert race. And we'll, okay. so we'll be there. So our car rock crawls. It goes fast across the desert. It goes, gets groceries. Um, and it loves the sand dunes. So yeah. It's just max everything. I mean, we're not going to win a drag race cause power to weight wins a drag race. So we build a very safe, um, sturdy, reliable, overbuilt car. So we, we're making it so the consumer, it's not their last car, but potentially it could be right. We're most of the, most of the competitive cars, you're always buying a new car every two, three years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I'm looking forward to seeing one. So I guess, yeah. I, uh, are you bringing one to Baja this year? Oh, yeah. We're racing four in the thousand this year. Okay. Yeah. So, well, let me check those out then. Yeah, trying to uh, ensure an, another victory. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to do, uh, we'll do I'm a putting my on name on every registration. So no matter what car wins, I get the credit. Ah, okay. There you go. <laughs> we'll, do a, we'll do a video on it. That'd yeah. be fun. I'm strap some GoPros on it, right? So Go good. fly the drone with it. I don't know. The drone can't keep up with it, I guess. So it's crazy. I, I have a, that new drone over there. Have you seen this? I've actually got one. I've never flown it. The Skydio? Unbelievable. Is it? Okay. Yeah. So I'm blown away. I, I had it chase. My, my streetcar and it uh -huh. chased my streetcar because what's crazy is, so it was, is it, it's for those of you, it's the Skydio Skydio 2 Skydio 2 I'm not sponsored by them that's not a plug I'm just telling yeah. you how cool it is yeah um, it is uh, 
the higher you put it away from you, mm -hmm. right? The, it's only doing 30 while you're doing 70, right? Because it's traveling at a different angle. Okay. Right. So if you put it up a little bit higher, your, your land speed can be faster. And as you move and so have to so do this, you're, you're doing 70, but you're doing that. Yeah. And it's just going straight. Okay. So yeah, it's, it's spectacular. It's return to be very careful because you're on the water. Yeah. Return to start. Yeah. Not return to you. Well, so the reason I got that is because I, I never, I just never ended up using it because you're a big kiter too. We'll get into that in a second. Yeah. But like, I want, it's, it's got like a little remote that you can wear. Yeah. And so even if it loses you visually, it knows where you are and can come back and find you. No. Oh no, it doesn't do that. So I'll give you some technology. Okay. So I've been very fortunate to, to be, understand uh, UHF. So two way radio, ham okay. radio stuff. Yeah. So going to go old school here my high school degree, sine, cosine, tangent, yeah, yeah. remember all that stuff. <laughs> I so kind of remember that. A, a, a sine curve is, is this. It looks like a heartbeat, like the sinus curve. If your yeah. heart is a sinus curve, right? Right. Oh, people are going to think I'm really smart, but this is just this stuff. <laughs> so the more watts your radio transmits, okay. the higher the sinus curve goes up and down. Mm -hmm. Five watt does this. Two watt does this. 50 watt does this. Okay. So my, my racetrack radios were 100 watts. Okay. Actually, now we, all, we use satellite two-way radio. Oh, really? It's, I'll talk about that later if we have to. It's phenomenal <laughs> technology. Um, Carla's here in, the, in, in Park City. And you can talk to her. I talked to her in La Paz. Really? Push to talk. Wow, that's cool. I'm racing mid-race. Hey, honey, almost done with the race. I'm almost to La Paz. Good. Everything good on the truck? Telemetry yeah. looks good. She can see everything. Yeah. It's crazy that's what we cool. can do. So it's it maybe a, uh, you got to be very careful because it's a push, talk, wait. Yeah, uh, it's not. It's a little different, but it works phenomenal. Do you have like a system where people can like track you as you're racing? Yeah, you can watch the whole race, chase the whole car, see my speeds live. Is that like on the race thing? Race, or is that yeah, your own race thing. Okay, racing. So you can just Google the Baja 1000 and find it. Yeah, uh, uh, racing tracks. Baja. Well, if you just score international and best right. in the desert, they both will do live tracking. Okay. So, 100 watt radio in my truck, a three watt radio in the Scadio. Mm. So it only three watts is line of sight. Yeah. Okay. So if you launch the Scadio here, put the beacon on you. Yeah. And it loses the beacon. Yeah. It's going to return here. Yeah. It's not going to return to the beacon because once you get out of that UHF frequency, that sine curve, yeah, it can't it find it. you. Yeah. Okay. So it'd be amazing, but there's all kinds of regulations on what, how, how, how powerful it can right. be. Because if they gave that 25 watts, yeah. it'd be good for 10 miles. Right. But then it might interfere with some other. A plane. A plane. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's why I think these are sub three. Okay. So they're, I can fly it from here to where you did the U-turn. Yeah. That's it. And then you're kind of out of range. So what's uh, do you have a plan on like racing? You're just going to keep going until you just don't want to do it anymore or what? You brought up kiting. Yeah. So I raced for 30 years and I'll do it as long as someone wants me to do it. Yeah. And I'm very fortunate that I get to keep doing it. I, I love being down there. The work it takes yeah. is, uh, for most people, I don't think they understand how much they look at it. Like, oh, I got to go do that. But the effort you put in to learn the race course, the work you do. I'll give you an example. So Carla got to do it. You know, my wife and I have been married now 30 years. Carla went to Baja for the f and was in my truck for the first time in, in the 30 years of marriage and all my years of racing this year. Yeah. Um, raising kids, risk, all this stuff. Um, and she, I couldn't get over it. I'm like, God, this is going to suck. She's not going to like this. This is brutal. And she rode co-passenger with me every day. And every day we went from Loretto to La Paz in the race truck on the race course. And that was about at race pace because I ran at race pace most days. Um, four and a half hours, okay. five hours, nonstop, wow. pinned. And then put it on the trailer and drove five hours home. Oh, gosh. Every day. She, she was okay with that? Loved it. Really? Well, can't wait to go back. She's wow. like, well, we going to Baja again this year. Yeah. yeah. So... I was in awe because that not too many people get up at six in the morning and get back at nine o'clock at night yeah, and eat dinner at nine, go to bed. And then our mechanics work all night yeah. on the truck. Fixing everything's broken. Just even if it's not broken, make sure it, making sure it won't break the next right, day. Right, right. So they're flipping tires. They're changing air filters. They're changing fuel filters. They're, uh, they're changing the oil in the motor and the rear gear. They're doing all this stuff to make sure the truck can do it again tomorrow but every day you get up have breakfast and you get home for dinner at nine and that's your <laughs> that's two weeks leading up to the race and then the race <clears throat> yeah so i'll do 
I'll do 7,000 miles of pre-running. Wow. And 7,000 miles of pavement. Yeah. 14,000 miles I'll do in the two weeks leading up to the race to go race for. Yeah, I guess a lot of people don't think about that. They don't think about, okay, they just think, oh, wow, they're racing a thousand miles. No, these guys have done this for two weeks straight. Two just weeks straight, every day. Driven. And then if you, it's wild. So in November when we race, it gets dark at 4.30, right? Yeah. So most of it's a night race. Yeah. So you think like, I should go pre-run during the day. Yeah. Okay, yeah, maybe once or twice. But, but you need to see it at night. And you need to get used to, if you, like for me, this year I took the truck at two in the morning. Yeah. So... Later in the in the week, I had to start adjusting to time. Mm. So we would go out at midnight. Yeah, you just okay. Do nothing all day. Wait for midnight, and then go out. Yeah. So that you're still tired or whatever. I mean, you get that. I mean, well, no. So you start acclimating to be ready for that time. Yeah. It's pretty wild. All the stuff you really have to do to 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 be successful. Well, hey, if she could put up with that, I mean, you know, she can put up with sailing around the world. I think. She, I think, um, she would be nervous yeah yeah uh, those are big open water days i i honestly would love to solo it i think that would be crazy fun it is i've done a, a few solo passages and they are kind of rewarding but you're exhausted by the end because you're i mean you're taking little cat naps right if you're doing like a two like the longest one i did by myself was like six days and like from the bahamas to uh puerto rico and you know it's it's you're just you're because you can't, you can't just go down below and sleep, right? You set the auto. I thought you just put on autopilot, have something beep, if something shows up, <laughs> picks up. There's a sea container or a cruise ship, whatever. Well, you know, I mean, like, so people cross in the Pacific Ocean. Like I've talked to people that are single handed crossing the Pacific Ocean, and they do that. But you're also, I mean, there's no other boats around for. I mean, like when we crossed the Pacific Ocean, we probably saw two boats for the entire. 17 days. Not even like the big ocean liners? Oh, but they were so far away. Oh, no, but, but you're out of the... Oh, you said that. You're out of the shipping lanes. You're out of the shipping lanes. And so the only other boats you're going to see are the random boat going from like Australia to like South America or something or other sailboats. And I think we saw two boats and none of them were within like eight or nine miles. And so, yeah, for 17 days. And so you're just not going to see them. But when you're down going from the Bahamas to Puerto Rico... There's a lot of traffic going through there, so you can do that. But like, so if you're in the South Pacific, I know people the single hand, and they will just set an alarm for like two or three hours, and then wake up, look around, and then go. Legally, you're not allowed, supposed to do that because you're supposed to the rule, law, the, the rules of the road, of law of the sea, whatever. Uh, you are supposed to maintain watch the whole time. So what are these these uh, these Volvo Ocean Racers? What are they doing? Yeah. I mean, they're. I mean, they televise them taking a nap. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. So it's not really. There's. It's not like an enforceable law. You're in international waters, right? Oh, right. There's so no law. It, I mean, it's so a recommended it's, rule. Yeah, yeah. So I just think it's. I, you know, endurance racing has been an amazing part of my life, and I. I look at that sailing, and it's endurance racing. Is there's well, nothing different? The Vende Globe is calling your name. I think. Oh, I don't know if I get that. <laughs> I. I look at that. That that section when they go around South Africa. Yeah. That. I don't know. Well, that's where people die all the time. Yeah, I'm not. I'll, I think Hawaii, San Diego, Hawaii would be yeah, really yeah. fun. I think what Brian just did, uh, yeah. you know, New England to, to the Caribbean. I don't care if it's the BVI Caribbean, whatever you want to call yeah. it. Uh, I think that would be really fun. Blown away that he did that on his first pass. Yeah. He's, I've known Brian a long time. And when he just said, I'm doing it, I was like, God bless you. That, I'm not coming with did you. Did he go, what? He went New England to Bermuda and then down? To the butter melted. Yeah. <laughs> do you know that storyline no what is that so the, just learn this okay so to get the right to so the trick is to go far enough would that be considered east uh yeah yeah far enough east that you have you end up as the islands head south mm -hmm. you make it there yeah otherwise if you end up at the bvi you're yeah. screwed you got to beat into the wind the whole way right yeah. so you put a you put a stick of butter okay <laughs> uh, in your kitchen, or I don't yeah. know if it's outside. And when it melts, yeah, you've caught the trade winds and the and the current that will make sure you land down by St. Martin. Yeah. So see, I mean, that that is the whole thing with sailing is that easting sucks. Uh, so most people, when they are going like a circumnavigation going around the world, you go west. Hmm. Um, because you're doing that at the middle latitudes because you have the trade winds go east to west, so you just follow the trade winds. And generally, the weather is nicer. 
if you want to go east, you got to go further north to catch those, catch those trade winds going east, and then you're in cold weather. Cold weather. Cold weather. So, so yeah, well, if you were to buy a boat in Europe right now, you, I guess they leave in November. They leave in November to yeah. make it to the islands. So you wait till hurricane season ends around November first, um, and. It's contrary to m- most people's thoughts. I mean, like during hurricane season, except for the hurricanes, the weather's better than like the rest of the year. Except for the hurricanes. Except for the hurricanes. <laughs> There's been a few that have been pretty damn big lately. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, and and really, I mean, hurricanes is uh, okay. So don't do an ocean crossing during hurricane season. The rest of the time, you can be down in the Caribbean right now, no problem. You just got to pay attention and and look for the weather and okay if there's a hurricane that could possibly be there in three or four days you have had had the other had the other way had 90 degrees away from it yeah but i mean the hurricane season is still predominantly coastal well i mean they form off the coast of africa and then they go across the atlantic yeah well that's where they so the hurricane doesn't form there but there'll be a, a tropical depression that starts there and it goes across the atlantic and about halfway across the atlantic they can form a hurricane and that's when they come to the islands i mean like what was it two or three years ago uh well there's no it's like five or six when puerto rico everything got taken out same same martin got really bad that was hurricane maria and irma and those so those come from south africa across just just like the middle of africa morocco or lower Uh, lower a little bit lower like uh, off the coast of like uh I don't know, Ivory Coast and like Ghana and all that stuff. And then they move across, hit the land and head north. Yeah, they kind of follow the trades up. Uh, so they follow the trades across and they start heading north. Once they get to about the BBI, they start tracking a little bit more north. They go across like, they generally go north of Puerto Rico through the Bahamas and then hit. Then they start catching like, uh, once they get further enough north, you got the Coriolis effect, you know, where the Earth's rotating, right? So as it goes more north, it gets pushed more east, um, and so they kind so of. So are there no hurricanes like Mediterranean? There's uh, Greece, no. nothing. No, but they have their own problems in the Med. Uh, so yeah, they, yeah, it's scary water. They the do. They no. So that's the thing is that like they have very unpredictable winds. They can be. You know, it's five, ten knots of winds. You're fine, and then twenty minutes later, it's blowing fifty knots, and nobody forecast it. So you talk about kiting. So yeah. I spend pre-COVID, I spent six weeks a year in Tarifa across. Is that the Azores or what? no? So Tarifa is about an hour west on the uh, uh, from the Strait of Gibraltar. Okay. Right. So um, and fourteen miles across is Morocco. Okay. And there's two winds there. There's the winds from the south of the Ventana. And there's one from the north. I forget what it's called. When it comes from the south, you're talking about really understanding wind and water. When it comes from the south, it is this beautiful, warm, Moroccan, 18 to 20. I mean, it's still big winds for a sailboat, but 18 to 25 just shuts off at night, turns it's on a thermal, however it works. It's just, you know, south. It's a southeasterly, southwesterly, sorry. Um, just gorgeous, gorgeous mm-hmm. freaking wind. And then two days later, it's from the north. Yeah. And I forget what that one's called. And that never shuts off. It'll blow 45 through your windows at night. Yeah. Um, and violent. And the, the swell is 12, 15 feet. Really? And you, you, can you kite in 12, 15? Oh, I, I go kite. I'll, I will kite up to 50 knots. Well, gee, I mean, like, how fast are you going when you're doing? I mean, you got a tiny ass kite or something? Or yeah. What? So the thing about kiting is, is, the wind dictates your kite size. Right. So all you're really managing is the water. Okay. So no matter what wind does, I can kite appropriately. Now, I've, hey, there's there's some risk to big wind, right? But sure. it's really that the big wind creates big water. Right. Um, it's not that I'm any over, more overpowered. When it's blowing 10 knots, you put up a 15. When it's blowing you know, 20 knots, you put up a 10. When it's That's blowing... 15 square meters. Square meters, yeah. Okay. So you just keep kiting down. I don't really care to kite anything smaller than a six-meter kite. So I'm good to, like I was cutting Oregon coast. It was blowing 40 gusting to 50 and I cut it eight meter Yeah, because the swell was 25 feet. So how do you manage the swell when you're kiting? I mean, like you love it. Yeah. You just, you just launch off of it or what? Well, swell does, is a crumbler, right? Right. And they don't break like a shore break, right? They right. just crumble. Yeah. So you're out there and I'm, I'm when I cut it, the Oregon coast, I cut this place called uh, the road's end just north of Newport. And, I was blown away. I mean, gray whales are coming by, orcas are coming by, uh, big schools of sea lions, and, and 
it's just the most magical thing to be out there with all this massive wildlife in this huge water. But that's when they're traveling. So, I mean, like, how do you, how did you get into kiting to do all that? So I was racing uh, for one of my sponsors was POC. Uh, they're a big POC. They're, they're a big uh, protection company. They're out of Sweden. There was a North American distributor. Uh, my buddy, uh, Yaka Duba was the distributor. And uh, I was ski racing and uh, mountain bike racing and more whiskey. That's going to be a good yeah, night. Yeah. It always helps. Yeah. With the conversation. Um, and uh, I hit up POC. I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm racing the South American World Cup on skis. And... <laughs> I got into ski racing like late in my thirties and me and my <laughs> wife, ski, like, like yeah. downhills, like snow skiing, snow ski racing, like okay. the dumbest stuff you could ever do in your thirties. Like, right. you, how's so, your knees? Yeah. So <laughs> me and my wife go to South America. We go to uh, Valley Navarro to go race the, like the over 35 world cup where like ex Canadian Olympians and Austrian Olympians are there. And, and my wife actually wins it. Really? Yeah, Carla won the South American World Cup wow, at like okay. 38 years old and wow. never raced in her life. Just, we had been practicing and and she got lucky because when to win the overall, you have to score points in all the disciplines. Yeah. So she never did much better than a fourth or a third in every discipline. But if you ski out, you lose points. So she skied every discipline. Yeah. And made points at everyone and won won the won world the cup. overall won the overall world that's cup. That's cool. Yeah, uh, she's I did not amazing. know that. I'll have to congratulate her. Yeah. There, snow ski mama. Okay, snow ski mama. There you yeah, go. She's a spectacular. Uh, yeah. And so I went down there and you know and I needed gear and they hooked me up and uh, after that I got invited to their sponsor thing and in, um, in Hatteras, North Carolina. Yeah. A company by the name of Real does this zero to hero camp. Okay. So f- five days, learn to kite. So that, that was going to be my next question. It's like, how long does it learn to take? To, how long does it take to learn it? So, pretty you, big learning curve. You sail, so you understand wind. That's okay. one huge advantage. Yeah. Um, if you do not know how to ride a twin tip, like if you can't wakeboard, you need to go learn to wakeboard. Okay. Because if you can't wakeboard, then there's nothing you can do. See, I'm not a great. I can wakeboard, and I can go across. I can do. Then you're fine. Training. That's okay. it. So like, as long as you can ride one. Okay. As long as the boat pulls you, you can get up. Yeah. And if you can ride switch right that really helps because when you ride when you kite you ride left foot forward mm-hmm. and then when you go the other way you go right, right foot, foot forward, forward yeah. so most people can go both ways but they can't stay up wind right yeah because when you they don't know how to edge and rotate their shoulders and everything so yeah i went there and i was that guy on zero to hero camp that um on the third day i'm like i don't need any more help i have this and it was like sunset and I'm there with like all these Olympian athletes that ski race and do all these motor mountain bike and all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm good. Let's go for a kite. And I ended up in Buxton, <laughs> you know, like Just 14 miles, away. 14 miles from where Gives I started. Chasing you in a little no, no. Everybody went out to save Todd. It was this night of like, <laughs> Todd's not coming back. Yeah. Right. And I ended up in the weeds with snakes and like <laughs> kite mares and all this stuff. But uh, ever since then, I, I travel world kiting and, and I think it's probably the most amazing sport as far as wind sports go and, and yeah. the the progression you know i foil kite now so, yeah um i've seen some of those guys foil kite before down in antigua and they're just flying yeah i'll click 35 mile an hour yeah. i mean so, it was only when we were there i mean it was blowing it was blowing 20 25 those guys probably were doing much faster probably 40 plus knots really across the water yeah especially if they're on a race wing race wings and race boards and if they use ram air versus inflatables like an lei is an inflatable leading edge and i ride mostly inflatables because i do more tricks where those race wings are just made to go fast okay so like it did the so is it kind of like i'm I'm from a little familiar with like uh, wing boarding so it's inflatable wing yeah so you're running a leading edge that's inflatable okay um the guys that race they run what's called a like a ram air so as air comes through the kite it inflates the kite is it a lot harder i mean like I mean, if you go down in the water, I mean, how do you relaunch that? Yeah, so I'm afraid of that. Yeah. And I ride in waves, so those guys don't really ride massive waves, but they relaunch. Yeah. They have, so they're one-way valves in them. Okay. So when the water comes in, the or if they hit the water, the water, as soon as you get any air back in the leading edge, or in the ram air, yeah. it just pushes the valve open and it opens the water drains out. Okay. I've seen the I've seen the whole kite submerged. Yeah. The guy gets a little bit of air, a little bit of air, a little bit of air, and... They're riding again. I mean, is there any inflation at all in it? No, really? Wow. That's got to be hard. They're so stable and they're so slow. Like my kites are like 
rocket ship fast. They yeah. move so quick left to right. Those kind of like, like they're just these big. So for racing, they don't move fast. So as your body's moving and that input's moving into the kite, none of that's affecting the bar and where the kite goes. You know, we steer with two fingers. You get all that power, all that energy, and you ride with just two fingers on either side of the lines. And that's all it takes to move yeah. that kite on my kite. Yeah. Those guys, they're like ripping with one hand, ripping the other because the kite just is so slow. Yeah. But that's why they can go so fast with them. Well, so does, uh, does Carla? Uh, Carla kites. She's been to Zero to Hero Camp okay. twice. Okay. My daughter Cicely met the other night. She kites. She's a great little kiter. She, uh, I taught her when she was 16. Well, you know, I mean, I know lots of people that uh, cruise around that do kite. And, you know, going across the South Pacific, some of those places, I mean, like you're in... Uh, like you get to French Polynesia and you want to go kite and the two motus. So the two motus are these, just these ring island dude, yeah. like atolls. And so like inside, I mean, it might be blowing 30 knots out there, but like it's flat. flat and, and so you're just flying or whatever. Well, when I was in St. Martin with you guys, yeah. I was on the north. Yeah. Uh, on the French side. French side. Yeah. And that was the same thing, that that bay. Oh, you're like a Marigo Bay or probably a Nor up there. Oh, it was, uh, what's that other bay up there? It's... um Oh gosh, I forget the name. It's, yeah. it's kind of the tourist trap up there. Yeah, yeah. But the way the island worked up there, if you went outside the cove, it was Grand Cost. Grand Cost. Grand Cost. Yeah. Went outside the cove, it was pretty windy and fun. I went outside the cove, but inside where a lot of guys were learning and having fun, this is pretty much flat water and, and pretty stable and yeah. really fun place to kite. So if you're if you're wanting to go sailing, and we were talked about it a little, you, you want more of a performance boat. Have you have you actually sailed on like an HH or a gun boat or anything? Just my F eighteen. Yeah, <laughs> I would recommend I'd recommend sailing on one of those, and then sailing on like a semi performance cat. Uh, I mean, you get the I mean, like, like you know you can get a lagoon or a fountain is a little bit more performance than a lagoon but i mean they're still basically mostly built for comfort and all that yeah. but I'd, I'd suggest sailing on one of those hhs or the whatever and just you are a lot faster but you know it's yeah. it's louder like you were saying this carbon hull is gonna be brutal yeah yeah so we'll see you know i've said that that fountain pagino is the other is kind of like don't buy a gunboat get the pagino and yeah you know at the end of the day is it gonna be hey we're gonna take six months and cruise and right. if we're gonna how much comfort because if you're living on a boat i, I honestly think comfort i mean you see you've been sitting on the porch right like, yeah we kind of enjoy some comfort well i mean if you get a big enough i mean if you get like a 60 foot you know cat something like that i mean you you know you have enough water line that you're still going to be doing you know 12 13 knots you know something like that i mean whereas the 45 footers are 10 9 knots you know top end um so it's all about water line and and weight really and that's why the you know the the carbon boats are so much faster. So it's 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 is it because the weight puts the hull more in the water? Well, I I, I mean there might be some of that. It might be some of drag because you have more hull in the water. But I think it's mostly just I mean you got to accelerate a heavier mass, right? I mean you got right. if, if the boat weighs ten thousand pounds more, they mean that much more pressure to push it through the water. And you can't just keep going up and sail. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, eventually, you know, you, get, you reach a stress limit on the on the sails and, and all that, um, you know, and that is, that's really important on a cat. I mean, on a, on a monohull, if you go overpowered, ideally, you know, the boat just right. lays over and it'll come back. Cat don't. Yeah. Cat doesn't do that. Yeah. Although from my uh, from what I've learned over the years is like so if you get in too strong a winds in a catamaran the wind is not going to push you over. If you get too strong winds in a catamaran, it might break your rig first. Um, so like the dual sponson. Well, so like I mean, your, your mass might break. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it can't handle the load. It can't handle the load. Yeah. So like the wind is not going to push your boat over and flip it over. That's not to say the, the waves can't. Um, right. Now here, that's the hardest part on the cat. Yeah. But you know, you get a big enough cat, you're kind of safe on that. I mean, unless yeah. you're out in 40 foot waves. Well, I, yeah. I mean, but that, that's the thing. And they, they, you know, uh, with the race experience and all that, it's all about planning ahead. Yeah. And I mean, just don't put yourself in that position. Yeah. I mean, you know, okay, don't, you know, don't sail across the Pacific during hurricane season and you'll be fine because like you might have uh, an isolated storm come through where it sucks for like six or seven hours, but you're not going to get 40 foot waves in that. You're going to get 10 15. Every time I talk to Brian, Brian's in 20 foot freaking waves. I'm like, what is he doing? Is he like, I mean, I see video. I'm like, that's, I mean, I, hey, I've done some crazy stuff. I jumped a 175 foot canyon 
On what? In my buggy for Nitro Circus one time. 42 feet in the air, 175 feet across. Jesus. Failure was not an option. And, yeah. I, and I'm like, I look at Brian, he's got videos and the, the waves look like skyscrapers. I'm like, what well, are you doing? It's like, not, I, I, okay, I mean, I've only been in like 20 foot seas once and... I mean, we knew it was going to happen, but we knew it was pretty. And honestly, if the waves have the distance, that's the thing is if they're far enough apart, it's actually nice because you're surfing down that wave and you're, you know, you're speeding up to 10, 11 knots. Then you're going up the wave. You kind of slow down a little, but they just never break. You just got to, they just, you just can't get those head walls. Yeah. yeah. Right. Or if it's confused, see, I mean, that's the problem is if like you got, if it's not just like a solid you know, swell that's really uniform. If you got two swells meeting and all that, that's when you get the washing machine. And and catamarans are generally pretty good in most sailing conditions. They, I'd say the, the sailing condition that they do suck in is when the waves are exactly beam on. Because mm. uh, then you kind of get the flip-flop. Whereas a monohole, don't get me wrong, it's not great, but a monohole kind of rides up and down. Right. So, I don't know. Just don't put yourself in those seas. Yeah. If you're well, kiting, they're good. Yeah. See, but uh, yeah, no, I... <laughs> Well, you talked about seas, so let me tell you, south of La Paz. Yeah. I've been in that stuff. Yeah. I do a ton of kiting out there. I mean, eight foot all day, crazy 30 to 40 knot winds. Do I, so are, are there people that go missing every year kiting and stuff like that? I mean, is it pretty often people like either disappear or, you know, die? I don't know because you're taught to kite never offshore. Right. That's part of what we learn. So you want the wind blowing onshore? It has to have some version of it. Full side is okay. Okay. Because even full side, you can body drag in okay. if you have an issue. Because side, you know, side is still side, so you can go left or right. Right. But never side off. Right. And never off. Right. So I don't think people go missing, but but people get hurt. Yeah. Um, the technology when I started kiting, um, I think was just at the inception of D power. So um, D power. Yeah. So back in the day. Imagine a kite was no different than a ski boat, you being attached to a ski boat. Right. If you held on to the, to the bar, you're still being pulled by the boat. Right. So the only way to get the kite not to make power is to have it at 12, 12 o'clock in, or at the ground. Right. At, at a full opposing the wind, right? Uh, or whatever that would be. Those are the only two ways the kite never made power. Today, that's still the case. But you have this bar that's like a gas pedal. And if depending on what you have, let's say it moves 18 inches. So the more you pull in, the more power it wakes. It trims the kite. Okay. Before, you could never trim the kite. It was trimmed and it was lit. Yeah. Uh, I started kiting right when you could have D power. I have friends who started kiting before that. And those they were those guys, the all the videos you see, the guy like going up and never coming down and yeah. blowing <laughs> in the cliffs, that's because he had no D power. Right. And I've jumped 70 feet on my kite. Yeah. Um, but I control it the whole time. I can fly so it. So you're flying it down like a parachute? Yeah, just parachuting. Yeah. Yeah, you can pick how slow you want to come down. Like, you go fly two football fields. Yeah. It's actually safer to be higher yeah. and glide because you get this kind of that versus this This is bad. Yeah. Right? Just that straight up pop and straight down because you got to get, you got to have, just like anything, you have to have that forward momentum right. when you land. You don't just want to fall in the sky. Oh, yeah, straight down. Yeah, so, so I was very fortunate, but I, I had a huge wreck. I was teaching my daughter to kite. And uh, I was on grass, and she walked across downwind, directly downwind, which is the scariest thing you could ever have. It's called hot launching a kite, right? And she tripped, and the, the kite went straight up in the air, and she was standing at a dock. So my only option, I know I'm coming at the dock. I'm only 60, uh, 66 feet away because of the lines. Yeah. And I'm in 30-knot wind. Uh-huh. So the kite goes up. I'm coming down, my, and I, my legs and me are going to go straight on the dock because the dock's elevated. Mm. So I sheeted in. I'm like, I'm either going to die hitting the dock Ugh. or I'm going to clear it. Yeah. So I pulled in, cleared the dock. I'm like, oh my God. And then <laughs> I hit, you know, when you tie your boat to the, yeah, those, pylon? those pylons. Yeah. Yeah. I hit the boat with the whole, the, the pylon with the whole left side of my, oh, I broke every rib oh and God. every cartilage off. Oh. And then it, your, your lungs are held in a bag. Yeah. Yeah. And I ripped that bag off my inner body cavity, and then I collapsed my left left lung. And then it spun me, and in the water is like a snowboard ramp, uh, like for guys to do tricks on. Yeah, I hit that. I broke two vertebrae in my back. It's just dragging you through there. Oh, it's it's instant. It was like a car wreck. You hit it so damn hard, uh, and then it I broke my back on that, and then it put me in the water and dragged me through the jet skis. <laughs> and I finally stopped, and like I should have been like everyone thought I was fucking dead. Oops, yeah. Sorry, and um. 
I was like, I'm good. And I, I, <laughs> You're not good. Because I didn't want my, my yeah, yeah. 14 year old daughter to think she'd kill her dad. And yeah. I kited the next day. Really? I called Carla. I'm like, hey, get here. She wasn't even there. I go, I'm not going to move in a day. I'm yeah. going to the ER. Yeah. I go, but I'm not going to let Cicely know I'm hurt. Yeah. So I went and kited with her the next day. I knew Carla. She flew from Park City to Norfolk, West Virginia, rented a car, drove down, and. I went to the ER and they're like, you're a disaster. <laughs> oh man. So you can get hurt. Yeah. Uh, and is that the worst? I mean, like what's the worst? I mean, you said you broke your thumbs, but racing was that, but that injury, they couldn't do anything for me. That was all weight. That was pretty rare. I've had some pretty bad, like I well, got like broken ribs. Yeah. There's, I mean, unless it's like a compound fracture, there's nothing they can do. Yeah, that was, have... that was just a long wait. Mm -hmm. Um, and the collapsed lungs tough, but, uh, I got in a head on, on my dirt bike once, um, in the air. So 50 double 50 so 100 mile an hour impact and i ripped this air off oh. blew out this air drum broke the femur uh, full si fracture of the pelvis uh broke the wrist broke the thumb that was two weeks in icu that one that one was rough see i mean i guess that's the difference between people that do the extreme sports stuff is that like you know i'm riding my bike down the hill at 30 miles an hour and I'm like whoa man I mean if I crash I'm dying or whatever whereas like the extreme extreme sports people are just like fuck it let's go you know I mean, yeah I, I look today what do you think how fast do you think I went today uh man you said you were pretty pumped I don't know I mean you said 36 the other day downhill single track I'm gonna I'm gonna say 39 I don't know today was fast but I don't right. know if we hit that those speeds but so today's top speed 42 42 miles an hour. I didn't know we went that fast. On a mountain bike. On a mountain bike descending. descending 42. Not on a road, right? You're no, right. it was 18 inches wide. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like I rode my, my road bike the other wow. day and I'm doing downhill and I'm hitting 37 on my road bike on pavement. nice pavement. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I need to slow down a little. We hammered today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit, man. All right. Well, we got a concert to go to tonight. Cheers, so. man. Great time. That's Thanks, a great uh, That was a fun conversation. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Thank you. So, uh, thank you guys for watching. We'll see you on the next one. Click that like and subscribe button and visit speedutv.com. Yeah. Speedutv.com and, uh, and the Romaniac. And the Romaniac on Instagram. We'll put yeah. his stuff up there. So, all right, guys. Y'all have a good one.